Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He who has ears to hear the Word of God, let them hear. Please be seated. On the first page of my Greek Testament of Romans, I have scribbled at the top of the page a few significant dates. The first one is the year 386 A.D. There in the latter part of the fourth century, there was this young man whose father was a pagan and whose mother was a devout Christian, and yet this man had devoted his youthful years to immorality. He had already sired one illegitimate son, and yet his mother continued to pray for his soul, sought the counsel of her pastor, Bishop Ambrose of Milan. And this young man was pacing one day in a garden where there was a copy of the New Testament chained to a lectern, and as he was walking, he overheard children playing in the grass, and they were singing a refrain to one of their childhood games, and the words were these, Tolalegi, Tolalegi, which literally meant, take up and read. And so this young man, whose name was Augustine of Hippo, Aurelius Augustine, went to the Scriptures that were there, and he allowed the volume of sacred writ to fall open where it would, and it happened in the providence of God to fall to a passage in Romans, in Romans 13, and Augustine's eyes fell on this passage, and do this knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, 
not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And as Augustine read these words, the Spirit of God took these words and pierced between joint and sinew, bone and marrow, to the very depths of this young man's soul, and by the power of the Word of God, with the Spirit attending it, Augustine was converted to the Christian faith, and we know him today as Saint Augustine of Hippo. Then later on in church history, in the year 1515, an Augustinian monk who had diligently pursued his doctoral studies in the works of Augustine was consigned to the university to be the professor of biblical studies. He had already delivered his first series of lectures on the book of the Psalms, and now his task was to teach his students the book of Romans. And as he was preparing his lectures on Romans and studying the first chapter of this epistle, he found a notation from an ancient manuscript of St. Augustine defining the righteousness of Christ, which Augustine said, as we will see when we look at that text, that when Paul speaks of the righteousness of God in the first chapter of Romans, it's not that righteousness by which God Himself is righteous, but that righteousness that He freely gives to those who put their trust in Christ. And for the first time in his life, Martin Luther, whose conscience had been wounded by the burden of the law of God that daily exposed his relentless guilt, said in his own commentary on Romans that for the first time he understood the gospel of Christ, the doors of paradise swung open, and he walked through. And it was from Paul's teaching on the doctrine of justification by faith alone that Luther stood against the whole world in the 16th century Reformation. Another date I have in my testament here is the year 1738, when a man who was already ordained to the ministry in the Anglican Church in England was listening to a message that was being delivered outside in London at Aldersgate, and he mentioned later that as he was listening to the words of the text of Romans, that he felt that his heart was strangely warmed. And he said that was the moment of his authentic conversion, a conversion that defined the life and ministry of John Wesley for the rest of his days. I could mention the impact of Romans on Calvin, on Jonathan Edwards, on a host of others throughout church history. But as we come to it now together, I remind you that God has richly blessed those people who have devoted themselves to the study of this book. And so with those words of introduction, let's begin now with the text itself, 
that begins all. A bondservant of Jesus Christ. I've never been too happy with that English translation of that second clause. And some translations, it simply says, Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's far worse. Bondservant is an improvement on that. But I think the proper translation should read like this. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Because the word that he used when he wrote this epistle is the Greek word doulos. And a doulos was not a hired servant who could come and go as he pleased. But a doulos was a person who was purchased. And once he was purchased, he became the possession of his master. Now, where you see this idea of the doulos in Scripture, you will see it always connected to another descriptive word, and that is the word curios. Now, some of you are of a Roman Catholic background. Others perhaps know something of sacred music in church history and high church liturgy, and you've heard of the curia, where you hear curia eleison, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, what does it mean? It's Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Because the supreme title that is given to Jesus in the New Testament, as we recently saw in our study of Philippians chapter 2, that the highest title that is given to Jesus by the Father is the title Curios. It translates the Old Testament, Adon, Adonai, which means the sovereign one. That was the name that was reserved for God in the Old Testament. Now, when you see that title, Lord or Curios, in the New Testament, there are three ways in which it is used. There's a simple common way where somebody could be called Curios to just simply like calling them Sir, a polite form of address. That's the lowest use of the term. The supreme use of the term curios refers, again, to the sovereign God who rules all things. And it's that title that is the name above every name that is given to Jesus because He's called by the Father the King of the kings and the Lord of the lords. But there is yet a middle level of usage of the term curios in the New Testament, and that is it is used to describe somebody who is a slave owner. And in this case, it aptly describes Jesus. And here is where Paul gives his identity. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Not just a servant, a slave. Because as Paul taught his children later, he said to the church, to the believer, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. You've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And here's the paradox, here's the irony, that when the New Testament describes our condition by nature, by birth, as fallen people, 
we are described as people who are slaves to sin. We are by nature in bondage to sin, bond servants of the flesh. And the only remedy for that, according to the New Testament, is that we be liberated by the work of the Holy Spirit. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So everyone who's born of the Spirit is set free from slavery. And here's the irony. When Christ sets you free from slavery to the flesh, He calls you to the royal liberty of being a slave to Him. That's what we mean when we call Him Master. We are acknowledging that in Him we go to get our marching orders. He is the Lord of our lives. We are not our own. We are not autonomous. We are not independent. And beloved, unless you understand your relationship to Christ in these terms, in all probability, you remain unconverted to this day. About 15 or 20 years ago in this country, there was a theological controversy that just blew up in evangelical circles, particularly in that circle of the Christian community that embraces a theology called dispensationalism. And this controversy was called the Lordship Salvation Controversy. Some of you may be familiar with it, because there were those who were teaching and preaching that you can receive Jesus as Savior and not receive Him as Lord and still be a Christian. You may still be a carnal Christian, a disobedient person, no real change has taken place in your life or in your behavior, but you are justified by the faith and trust that you put in Jesus as your Savior. And of course, you should embrace Him as Lord as well, but uh, that's not necessary for salvation. Beloved, that was a pernicious distortion of the biblical gospel. And it gave multitudes of people assurance of salvation who were not saved. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian in the sense of somebody who's completely in the flesh. A person cannot go to Christ as Savior and say, save me, but I'm going to live my own life the rest of the time, and I'll do what I want to do. No. Those who come to the cross who fall on their face before Jesus, who trust in His work of redemption alone, are people who are yielding to Him at the same time as the master over their lives. So the Apostle Paul knew no kind of dichotomy between Christ as Savior and Christ as Lord, and he makes it clear in the very first sentence of this book, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Now, that's a significant affirmation about himself and his mission. Those of you who are with us, remember during our study of the book of Acts that in the early chapters of Acts, the church gathered to elect a new apostle, 
and they set forth the criteria for apostleship in the early church. You remember? And the first criterion for membership in the rank of the apostolate was to be a disciple of Jesus during His earthly ministry, and then secondly, to be an eyewitness of the resurrection, and thirdly, most importantly, to be commissioned by Jesus directly and immediately under His authority and appointed by Christ to be His apostle. Now, remember, one time Jesus sent out 70 disciples. So, there are far more disciples than the 12, and not all of those who were disciples became apostles. We tend to use those words interchangeably, don't we? There's 12 disciples, 12 apostles, they must mean the same thing. No, a disciple's a learner, a student. Jesus was the rabbi, and enrolled in His school were many disciples. But of that group, He only chose 12 to be elevated to the rank of apostle. And to be an apostle means to be commissioned to speak for the master. In the ancient world, an apostle would be like an ambassador who could speak in behalf of the king, and his message would carry with it the stamp of the authority of the one who sent him, because the word apostolos in Greek means simply one who is sent. And you remember what Jesus said to His apostles? Those who receive you receive Me. Those who do not receive you do not receive Me. And in our day, we have people all over the place who say, well, I like to hear what Jesus said. It's that Paul I don't want to listen to. But you don't know anything about Jesus except what was written about Him by other apostles, and you're just setting Paul against Matthew or Paul against John here. You can't do that because the apostles all carry the authority of Jesus Himself. That's what it means to be an apostle. That's why the New Testament church is built on the foundation of the apostles. Now, in these criteria, Paul fails the first two tests. He was not a disciple of Jesus during Jesus' tenure on earth. Paul was not an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. And that's why it was that in the early church there were some who challenged seriously the apostolic authority of Paul. But the supreme qualification for apostolic authority was to be called directly and immediately by Jesus. That's why I'm sure three times in the book of Acts the account of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus where Christ stopped him in his tracks and commissioned him to be his apostle is repeated there in the book of Acts to remind the people that Paul is an authentic agent of revelation. He speaks with the authority of Jesus. And so he sets that forth right at the beginning. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, but I have a call. I have been called and I have been set apart as an apostle, called to be an apostle, the next phrase, separated. The Latin there is segregated, cut apart from the multitude, 
to a specific, sacred, consecrated task. And that to which he was separated was this, called to be an apostle and separated to the gospel of God. This is what this whole epistle is going to be about, the gospel of God. But there's something here in this first line of Romans that we could read 50 times and miss the significance of it. When Paul says that he is set apart and consecrated, sanctified as an apostle for the gospel of God, the phrase that he uses here involves a part of speech in the Greek language which is the genitive, which indicates possession. So when Paul says that he's separated to the gospel of God, he's not saying that I'm commissioned to announce a message or good news about God. But rather, this gospel to which I have been separated and called to proclaim is God's gospel. He's the author of it. He's the owner of it. And I am just simply the messenger who is called and set apart to proclaim to people a message that comes from God Himself. Now, if I said to you, beloved, I said, boy, do I have some great news for you. That would pique your interest, but I said, but let me tell you, this great news comes from God Himself. Now, you may at first blush think that I was nuts, and then upon second thought come to the solid conclusion that I am nuts. But if you thought for a moment that I were sober in such a statement, and that I really did have a message from God Himself, good news. Wouldn't you want to hear it? But that's what Paul is saying before he begins to unpack the gospel, before he spells out all of the doctrines of grace in this epistle. He said, I've been commissioned to proclaim God's gospel, that gospel that belongs to Him. It's His possession, and I'm going to communicate it to you. Now, notice what he says next. He separated to the gospel of God, which He, that is God, promised before through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Let me pause there for a second. Sometimes we have a tendency to have an artificial separation or distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We talk about the Old Testament as law, the New Testament as gospel, as if there were no law in the New Testament and no gospel in the Old Testament. What Paul is saying here at the very beginning, on the front page, is that this gospel that I'm going to teach you in this letter is not a novelty. It's not a new insight that I came up with when I had to come up with a thesis for my Ph.D. dissertation. Paul is saying, no, this gospel to which I've been separated is the same gospel that was promised before. That promise was repeated over and over and over and over and over again. In fact, the first time the gospel was promised in the Old Testament. It was promised in the context of a curse. 
You remember after the fall, God cursed Adam, cursed Eve, then he cursed the ground, and he cursed the serpent, and told the serpent that he would be on his belly, and he said that the seed of the woman would crush his head. And in the process, the seed of the woman would bruise his own heel. Centuries and centuries before Christ was delivered to the cross, where there he crushed the head of Satan, while at the same time being bruised for our iniquities. That gospel of Christ was contained in the promise of the curse of the enemy. We call that the proto-evangelium, the first proclamation of the gospel. And so, Paul is aware of that. He was an expert student of the Old Testament. And he said, this gospel, God promised before through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The sacred writings is the phrase he uses. I heard not too long ago a professor say, it used to be when Billy Graham was so successful in his crusades where he went all over America and indeed all over the world, and he was famous for holding up the Bible in his hand and say, the Bible says, and he would quote the Bible and use that as the authority from which he would call people to repent from their sins and to embrace Christ. We're all familiar with that. But it was said in, in this classroom I attended a few years ago, they said, the days are over where you can go out now and say the Bible says and expect that to have any credibility. Because the work of criticism by the academicians has been so severe, they've done their job, the people have lost confidence in the trustworthiness of sacred Scripture. Well, beloved, God hasn't lost confidence in the power of the sacred Scriptures. God has invested the sacred Scriptures with the power of the Holy Ghost. And He declared to Isaiah, My word will not return to me void. When God utters His mouth, the earth melts. One poet put it this way, hammer away, ye hostile hands, your hammers fail, God's anvil stands. And so Paul is not sheepish about where his authority lies with respect to this gospel that God promised before through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. There is no greater source to my mind and to my way of thinking that gives me more confidence of credibility than the Word of God. I am impressed by rational arguments on certain points, by the power of logic and the formal truth of mathematics. I'm impressed when empirical science does due diligence and 
verify hypotheses in an amazing way, but nothing moves my soul, my heart, and my mind to acquiesce to its certainty than to find it in the pages of sacred Scripture. I've said this to our congregation more than once. I always get annoyed when I see that bumper sticker that God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I said, you've got to get rid of that middle term. If God says it, ladies and gentlemen, it's settled whether you believe it or don't believe it. There is no higher court of appeal than the voice of God. And so it's perfectly appropriate for the Apostle Paul when he's defending that gospel that he's been commissioned to proclaim to say, look, it's found in Scripture. Let me take you back to Genesis and take you through Jeremiah and Isaiah and the Psalms. Just as our Lord Himself, as He walked with the people on the road to Emmaus after His resurrection, and beginning with Moses and through the prophets, He opened up the Old Testament text to them so that they should not be surprised by His resurrection. And you remember then His identity was still hidden from them, and then they sat down to break bread together, and Jesus left them, and they suddenly realized who it was. And remember what they said? Did not our hearts burn within us when He was explaining the Scriptures to us? Can you identify with that? There's a bad kind of heartburn, but there's a good kind of heartburn, and this is a good kind of heartburn where your heart burns when you see the power of sacred Scripture authenticating God's truth over and over and over again. Which He promised before through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's that curios and the doulos. Concerning Jesus Christ our Lord, here in this very brief passage, Paul is calling Jesus the Son of God. He's calling Him the Messiah of Israel because that's what the term Christ means. Remember, Jesus Christ is not His name. Jesus is His name. His full name would be Jesus bar Joseph or Jesus of Nazareth, but the word Christ is His title. And what that title means is Messiah. And so His Son, the Son of God, is the Christ, Paul is saying, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. This is very important to the Jew because the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah said that that Messiah would be of the line and lineage of David. Why does Luke spend so much time on the nativity of Jesus bringing us to Bethlehem, the city of David? Because the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would be born out of the loins of David. He would be David's son, and yet at the same time, David's Lord. And so Paul reminds his recipients of this epistle here that Jesus Christ was born of the seed of David 
caught the sarka according to the flesh. I mention that because this, again, is a very important phrase in the New Testament. The Greek has two different words that have reference to the physical nature of our humanity, words that are sometimes used interchangeably, but not always. The more common word for body or physical character of people is the word soma. You've heard psychiatrists and psychologists who talk about psychosomatic illnesses. They're saying that these illnesses that you feel in your body have their genesis in disturbing aspects to your psychology and so on. It's not that they're not real. They are real, but they affect your soma, your body. But in addition to that term soma, there is this word sarks. And sarks also refers to the physical dimension of human life. And Paul will say elsewhere, I did not meet Jesus caught to Sarka. I never met him in the flesh. I met him in the power of his resurrection on the road to Damascus, but I never met him personally when he was in the flesh during his incarnation in this world. And that's what Paul is getting at here. But elsewhere, that term sarks is loaded with theological content because the term sarks, which is translated flesh, is used to describe our fallen, corrupt nature. You know, when Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. When Jesus says, the flesh profits nothing, He's talking about our fallen condition, not our skin and bones but our corrupt nature, which is set in contrast frequently in Scripture to the Spirit. There's a war in the Christian life between flesh and Spirit. You still battle with the flesh, and it's not a battle with your physical body. It may include that, but the battle between the flesh and the Spirit is the battle between the old man, the fallen corrupt person, and the regenerated person who is now living by the Spirit of God. Paul will talk about that later on in this epistle. But now he's saying that according to the flesh, in terms of his physical humanity, Jesus was born of the seed of David. Paul here is not denying the virgin birth. Where Christ received his deity, not from Mary, not from Joseph, but he brought his deity with him from heaven, and the virgin birth bypass the normal human reproductive process, but nevertheless, touching his human nature, he was descended from David. But with respect to his divine nature, of course, from the Logos of heaven. He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. Now, let me just talk about this for a moment. Paul summarizes the whole life and work of Jesus here. He comes, he's born of the seed of David, and then God verifies, declares him to be his son in power. 
And obviously what Paul is referring to is clear because he mentions it in the next breath, by the power of His resurrection. When God the Holy Spirit raised the corpse of Jesus from the tomb, it was God's announcement to the world that this was His Son. And so, by what evidence do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God? By the testimony of God, who has declared Him to be His Son through the power of the resurrection. Remember back when we were studying Acts, and Paul went to Athens, and he debated with the philosophers on Mars Hill there at the Areopagus? And remember, he said, the former days of ignorance God overlooked when they had their monument to an unknown God. He said, the former days of ignorance God overlooked, but now God commands all men everywhere to repent and to submit to Christ, whom God has appointed to be the judge of all of the earth and who has declared Him to be His Son by the resurrection. Somebody was in our church last Sunday morning, and he was with a friend that goes to this church, this young man. He came out, shook hands with me at the door, and he said, this is my buddy. He came with me today. He's agnostic. And I just stopped right there. I said, whoa, you're in serious trouble. I said, because you refuse to affirm the existence of God. Most agnostics use the term because they want to say, I'm not a militant atheist. No, you're worse. Not only will you refuse to affirm the existence of God, but you blame God for your disobedience. You blame God for not providing enough information for you to make an intelligent decision. Well, as we will see in the rest of chapter 1, Paul labors the point that God has manifested Himself so clearly to every human being that nobody has an excuse for denying Him. And when God declares His Son to be His Son through the power of the resurrection, that may be all you'll ever get. You may be like Thomas and say, well, unless I see Him and put my hand in His wounds and in His side, I'm not going to believe. Say that to God on Judgment Day, who has manifested the reality of Jesus through the power of the resurrection. And that's what Paul appeals to here. He said, I'm not declaring to you that Jesus is the Son of God. God has declared that to you by the Holy Ghost in the power of the resurrection. And through Him, We've received grace and apostleship. I could stop there and just say, through Jesus, we have received grace, and we've received the gift and the responsibility of apostleship, but grace and apostleship have a purpose here. We've received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for His name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Do you see how quickly Paul moves here from his own call as an apostle 
to the call that was shared by every Christian in the church at Rome, to the call that is shared by every Christian in every church in every age. The Bible calls it the elect, the called out ones. The church is the ecclesia, taking the verb kaleo, meaning to call, and the prefix act, meaning out of, that every Christian is called out of the world, out of bondage, out of death, out of sin, into Christ and into His body. And so he reminds them, I'm not the only one that's been called. But if you're a part of the church, then you too have been called out, separated by the power of the Holy Ghost. And what are you called to be? Well, he says in verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. You know that's your vocation? <laughs> what are you studying? I'm studying to be a saint. <laughs> Think it'll ever happen? It's already happened if you are in Christ Jesus. You are already numbered among the saints. The word for saint in the New Testament is the word that means sanctified one, one who has been set apart by the Holy Spirit, one who's been called inwardly by Christ to Himself. And if you put your trust in Christ, you are right now, as I speak, a saint. You're set apart. You're a part of the invisible church, the church that is beloved of God. Finally, in this section, Paul says his traditional greeting, grace to you and peace. You know, in the Old Testament days, the Jews greeted each other the same way they do today. Shalom aleichem. Peace be unto you. And the response would be, aleichem shalom, and peace also to you. You hear your Jewish friends say, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The Jewish benediction for centuries has been that the Lord would bless you and keep you, cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you, lift up the light of His countenance upon you, and give you peace. Not as the world gives, said Jesus in His final will and testament before He left this world, but He left us His peace, peace that transcends earthly peace, peace that is permanent, a peace that is eternal, where the warfare between the sinner and God is over. How Jeremiah was directed by God to say, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is over, for she's received double for all of her sins. That cry, beloved, is pronounced to every Christian. That's why Jesus is the consolation of Israel. 
That's why He is our paraclete. He is the one who comforts us because He gives to us the peace of God that cannot be revoked. It's not an uneasy truce. God doesn't rattle the sword every time He's distressed with your behavior. Being reconciled, being justified, as we will see later, we possess that peace right now, now and forevermore. And so, that's integral to the apostolic greeting. Grace and peace, because they go together, because the peace of God is not something we could ever earn, we could ever merit, we could ever deserve. That peace that comes from God is by His grace. And so, what Paul wishes for his friends in the church in Rome is that they would receive the grace of God. Dear ones, that's my deepest prayer for each one of you, that you would know the grace of God and the power of the resurrection of Jesus, and that you would know His peace today and forevermore. And so we start this evening with the introduction, the greeting. Next week, God willing, we'll turn our attention to the body of the content of this epistle. I ask you now to pray with me. Father, thank You for this announcement of the gospel that is Your gospel, the way in which You have declared Jesus to be Your Son and our Lord. And You have called us to faith in Him and obedience to Him.